Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Food Biz Wiz, the podcast. Listen up, Wizzes. I've got an incredible guest lined up for you today, and I'm so eager to get to this interview. In today's episode, I am talking with David Brown, a market research, retail, and brand analysis in the natural, organic, and specialty food space. I mean, that's such a great title. But what does it really mean, you might ask? Well, it means that David is the go-to person for identifying and analyzing trends in the industry, and he's going to talk with me today about his work writing the State of the Specialty Food Industry Report Series for the Specialty Food Association and Mintel, which he's written for the past decade. We're going to get some insight on what we can expect to see in the future of the food industry and why that's important for your brands. Are you ready to dive in? Let's do this. You're listening to Food Biz Wiz, the weekly podcast for everyone in the packaged food industry. Join your host, Allie Ball, to learn how to launch, grow, and scale your business. You'll hear real-life examples from her time as a professional grocery buyer, interviews with CPG experts, and listen in on actual client coaching sessions. Let's get going. This episode is sponsored by Retail Ready, my online course for emerging food brands who are looking to grow their wholesale business. I've been teaching Retail Ready for three years, and I've had over 150 brands enroll in the course. Through videos and workbooks and checklists and templates and live coaching calls with me, plus 24-7 access to me and my team in our private online group, Retail Ready has all the tools that you need to increase your sales through wholesale accounts, whether that's in traditional brick and mortar outlets or through e-commerce platforms. I'd love to see you join us when the course opens again. So jump on the wait list to be the first to know when I welcome new students. You can find that wait list in today's show notes or at foodbizwiz.com under the heading Retail Ready. Hey, David. Great to have you on the show today. Uh, It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So my listeners, as I said in that intro, I'm so excited to have David on our show. He and I connected in the late spring of 2019 when he was putting together his State of the Industry report. And we've gotten to know each other over the past six months or so. And I can tell you, you guys are in for such a treat today as he's shed some knowledge about this incredible report. It is such a great resource for you guys, and I'm betting that most of my listeners don't even know about it. So let me tell you a little bit about David, and then I'm going to let him fill in the gaps himself. So David has an impressive background in the food industry, which started 27 years ago. David worked his way up from a bag boy at Whole Foods in Texas, moving to a buyer role and then into department manager and store trainer, where he was awarded a Whole Foods all-star recognition several times over. I love that. So David, I should speak directly to you. When you left Whole Foods in the 90s, you were recruited as a merchandising director of health and wellness products at an e-tailer, an online retailer which later sold to Vitacost. And then you joined the SPINS team as the VP of product development. I love this. 
From there, David, it seems like your career just skyrocketed into the data analysis side of things, joining Mintel as a senior analyst, where you establish yourself as the primary spokesperson and expert on natural, organic, and specialty. So then I know you did some major international travel. You came back to the U.S. in 2014. You started your own consulting business. I mean, David, it seems like you have done it all. You've mentored so many brands in the natural product space. You have been writing the leading specialty report for the past decade. And now you're an advocate and trend predictor of natural, organic, and specialty food. I mean, you know, I've said this to your face and I'll say it again. I am in awe of how much you've done and how much you support key players in this industry. So welcome, David. Again, I'm so happy to have you here. How was, how was that for your, your intro and your background? You did a great job. Uh, I'm, I'm humbled uh, by the introduction. I really appreciate all the kind words. Thank you. Of course. Well, I appreciate your being here on the podcast. And one of the things that I want to dive right into is this, this, I, this, what, thinking about what the catalyst was for your transition from retail, from being on the ground at Whole Foods, from really building a career, starting a really you know, robust career at Whole Foods and transitioning out of retail into that data analysis and report writing phase that you're that you're in now what what sparked that and why why did you make the transition yeah well i i feel like you know the whole foods experience is really important to mention because whole foods in the 90s uh was still a very decentralized company and so what i mean by that is every store had its own set of buyers that were responsible not only for replenishment but choosing new items uh Managers like myself were responsible for margins and labor budgets. And basically, we were running our own little mini companies within stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, and through that experience, I worked in four different stores. I opened a new store. So uh, as you can imagine, going through that experience is invaluable as a as a buyer and a, yeah. <laughs> dep- a department head. And there's so much that you see. I moved, into, I moved from Texas to California. So we had to switch primary distributors. And I learned about what the the realities of that are and the difficulties and the benefits and things like that. So uh, I feel fortunate in that regard. And then, you know, basically I was ending up uh, at Whole Foods in San Francisco uh, at the store at the time that was the highest volume store in the company. And basically every day felt like a holiday. And I'm not even going to tell you what it was like, you know, the week of Thanksgiving or the week of Christmas. Uh, I can imagine it. And I'm like cringing over here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the benefit of such a high profile position was that I was headhunted, you know, and I was recruited to uh, join an e-com dot com company at the time that was going to be San Francisco based. They needed a buyer, a head buyer, head merchandiser. And uh, I was strategically situated where they found me. And, um, you know, those are the kinds of stories I think that when you're in this industry long enough and you make certain decisions and say, hey, I'm going to try working in that San Francisco store because it's good for my development, you know, good things happen when you really put yourself out there. And and I feel fortunate in that regard. But what I realized when I joined the dot-com and then spins afterwards was that I was a data guy as well. I really enjoy looking at the numbers and uh, as you know, retail hours are kind of a killer. And yep. I, I was enjoying the nine to five and working with developers and, and uh, marketing people on, on uh, sort of uh, e-commerce. It was very fascinating for me. I learned a lot and I had some natural 
uh, tendencies towards being strong with data. And uh, I think that that just took off from there. When I joined Mintel, I begged them to let me write reports. And, and I always say, even now, I'm an analyst first, I'm a writer second. And, and, and that's okay. Because in that role as a senior analyst, while I was writing a 100-page report and had to um, work with editors and, and my boss to make sure that it was written grammatically properly and things of that nature, I also was just uh, allowed to be an analyst first and really push data and insights uh, to the forefront, even if you know, the writing was a little clunky at times because that's what mattered to the, the client at the end of the day. I love that. That sounds that sounds really special. And I love that you have this... I love that you have the retail experience to know what, what publications you put out now, what reports you're writing now, um, how much of an impact they have on the retail floor. I think that that's so important. Mm-hmm. So um, for those who are listening who don't know what spins is and don't know what Mintel is and maybe doesn't know, you know, who the specialty food association is. Can you, can you give us a little bit of overview of what those three organizations do? And, you know, before we start talking about what your current role is. Sure. So uh, spins is at the time when I joined in 2000, they were primarily tracking sales of natural products through distributors like Mm -hmm. UNFI. Mm -hmm. And they they migrated their business wisely so that they would start tracking the sales through actual retailers, so actual movement data. And they became essentially the Nielsen for the natural products industry. And companies that uh, small natural brands or even large natural brands that were moving in Whole Foods or Wild Oats at the time or, or other uh, retailers had no way to see how well they were doing, especially against their competition, unless they bought spins data. And so to this day, they serve uh, a a unique purpose in the industry uh, and the data is invaluable for that. But uh, more importantly, I think what I'm proud of, uh, spins, we had a team of ex-natural products retailers like myself that would comb through new products, the thousands of new products that would come out every month that would be moving through the sample of stores that we were, were uh, in the spin sample mm-hmm. and research those products and try to slice and dice them the way a manufacturer or a retailer would want to evaluate the data. So we created 70 some odd categories and 200 plus subcategories so that people could look not just at plant-based milk, but at soy milk versus almond versus other nut-based milks. They could look at organic versus non-organic, uh, GMO, non-GMO. I mean, you, the infinite ways that you can slice it that are logical ways that you'd want to slice it. And to me, that really uh, influenced my career significantly because I realized having been a retailer, I was focused on what sells and I was really customer facing. Mm -hmm. And then through spins and even Mintel, I was brand facing and I was thinking like a brand and what matters to a brand or what matters to a retailer. And so having that dimension and having that perspective is really key to, I think, understanding so many facets of this industry. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So that spins and then give us the DL on Mintel. So Mintel, what, what's useful to me to say is that at Spins, I was operating, looking at literally a million UPCs at any given point. Everything, every category, food, non-food, supplements, body care, whatever it may be, 
what was excellent about about Mintel is that their syndicated reports that I was writing were on were on individual categories. So we'd write a hundred page report just on cold cereal or on energy bars. And to do that kind of deep dive and look at who the key brands are and what the advertising and marketing is like and what the consumer sentiment is regarding these these types of products was really important to my development as well. And it's what makes Mintel valuable that you can go in as a brand, as a company and buy just one syndicated category that you compete in, or you can do custom work as well through their, their consulting division. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So I, I love this too. I bet a lot of our listeners haven't seen some of this reporting and, you know, I'll say personally, when I was in a buyer role, we used to use spins data and make, category changes based off of it. And, you know, we would receive these reports that were hundreds of pages of just like rows and rows of spreadsheet, frankly, um, with a little bit of analysis, but they are so deep. They're so overwhelming unless you know how to use the data and, and implement it in your strategy. Right. You're absolutely right. You're yeah. absolutely right. You you do need to be a detective. And I think I think that that's one of my strong skills and, and probably yours as well, that you can weed through all of the clutter and you can think more strategically about questions you have and answers that you need. And and you're right. At the end of the day, a company like Spins or even Nielsen or IRI, they are selling movement data. Yeah. But there's so much more to the story that you 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 need as a brand. You need an in-house person that's savvy enough to... Um, to be able to sift through it, or you need yep. to work with somebody like you or me to to help guide you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that that is a great segue into what you do now uh, with your consulting work and what you have been doing for the past ten years for the Specialty Food Association and for Mintel. So let's start. Can you tell me briefly what you do in your consulting work? Yeah, so I have for years now been helping independent retailers, natural and specialty retailers, and then also small emerging brands. And really my niche is uh, that these brands or these retailers, they partner with spins or they have access to Whole Foods Portal or UNFI or KHE data, but they don't really have the time or the money to hire full-time people to evaluate that data. And so I strategically target these types of retailers and brands and say, hey, you know, you can use me, you know, 10 hours a week or 40 hours, uh, 40 hours a week, whatever it may be to answer certain questions. And I've helped retailers with massive resets. So they might have reams of data from UNFI with planograms. (laughs) They may have spins data, but they're like, geez, you know, how many doors of frozen desserts do I need? Just please answer that question for me. (laughs) Where were you in 2012 when I was doing buy right to biz? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I've been doing that really for the last five years. And, uh, you know, I've worked with certain retailers for more than a year. I've worked with some for just a few months. And more recently, I'm really focusing more on emerging brands. I I am really passionate about that. Yeah. And I'll personally say, um, you know, I know you're working with one of my Retail Ready students and she is just, she just has such rave reviews about the work that you've done together and um, how much looking at the numbers has propelled her to this other level with her brand. So um, I love, I love hearing her testimony as well. That's great. I mean, I, 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 that's the main thing that I would say, you know, when I look to the types of companies I'm working with, 
I want to find companies that really are responding well to the data that they're not so overwhelmed that they just don't have time for it. Uh, my clients tend to be salivating. They can't wait to yeah. hear what's what's new. And also it's, it's, it's very critical that they have some of these numbers to advance their cause, to get into new retailers or new distributors. It's really critical. So Totally. Okay. So let's talk about this I keep calling it the, in my mind the state of the union. Let's talk about the Specialty Food Association and Mintel's annual report that you've been doing for the past decade. I think that we are about to blow some minds of our listeners when they realize that this resource is, is available to them. So tell me what it is. Tell me the history of it and give us, give us the details. Yeah, sure. Well, it actually started when I was at Spin. So 2003, uh, Mintel reached out with the Specialty Food Association to Spins and said, hey, we want to write a report on the state of the industry of specialty foods and beverages. And I should just say right now, for the sake of your listeners and for anyone involved, that the definition of specialty food and beverages can be a little bit subjective. It can be a little mm -hmm. vague, but generally speaking, we define it as products that have limited distribution, a reputation for high quality. They may be very unique to the marketplace or have exotic ingredients that can only be found in certain parts of the world. Yep. They may be processed in a very exclusive way. They're typically upscale packaged. They're in limited runs. You know, you can go on and on. And I, and I know you'll know what I mean as an ex-retailer that a lot of these products when I was at Spins or even now, you know them when you see them, yeah. but, you're, but it's hard to really define them you know, in, in a very simple way. Yeah. And so at Spins, we, were, we developed a custom universe of these products that would become what is the specialty food industry for sales. And so um, in the last decade, since I left Spins and even less left Mintel, we still go back to spins every year and we uh, commissioned to get some data pulled three years of movement data for these specialty products, which include natural, all natural products and organic products, as well as these premium gourmet products um, that may contain artificial ingredients. Although, as you probably mm -hmm. imagine, a lot of those products are getting cleaned up, you know, yep. year, year to year. And... From there, we also do our own estimates to account for missing retailers in the universe, mm -hmm. like Whole Foods and Trader Joe's, who don't yep. share their data with anyone, uh, e-commerce sales, food service sales, and so on. And then in addition, because we're gluttons for punishment, <laughs> we also do uh, a 25-question consumer survey that goes out online every January to all U.S. demographics, about 2,000 people. And we ask and identify specialty food consumers within that subset and ask them how they buy, where they buy, why they buy, and uh, other attitudinal and behavioral data. And we put all of that into a massive, it's now a 200 plus page report Ugh. with over 170 figures and uh, data charts. It's just, it's a behemoth. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> it really is. And good on you for doing that. I mean, yes. I like bless your heart. I feel I feel like you're you're obviously the perfect person for this role, but also <laughs> um who else would be so passionate about the natural foods industry to want to devote their time to do this? It's really oh gosh, it's huge. Oh, yeah. And, and what I love about it too is I don't expect readers to read all 200 pages at, at any given point. I really don't see that. And I, and I think that through working with the director of consulting at Mintel, who's my partner in this, and then also a, a key person or persons at the Specialty Food Association, we realize, hey, this report is for the membership. It's for the brands. It's for the retailers and distributors. And we don't want to make this 
a bogged down, you know, behemoth that is really yeah. not all that useful. And instead, yeah. we, we have a really robust table of contents that's, you know, multi-page. You can link to certain sections of the report. We have a, an executive summary that is nearly 20 pages long. If you only have time for that, you can read it on a flight and really get down to basics. Or you can, you know, just look at food service information or e-com or just what's going on in natural retailers. It's really meant to be referred to throughout the year until the next one publishes. Yeah. So can I ask you, how long does it take for you to put this together? Well, it's not continuous, but basically I start my research in December and then we get most of the year-end data from spins in mid-January, and we get our survey fielded in January. So really, the bulk of the writing and the research is from February through April. And it, it, it's pretty full-time February through April, I would say. Wow. Wow. So can I ask, I want to ask a few more questions about this, and then I'm sure our listeners are going to be like, okay, but just give us the summary. Tell us yeah. what's in the report. But before we get into some of the key findings, I, I want to go back to the basic and ask you this question. If you are a brand in this space, if you are a brand in the natural products industry, why would you, how and why would you use this report? I mean, I understand on a, on a basic level that data is important. But can you tell me a little bit more how you see brands use this report? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I didn't mention yet was that the report also covers individual sales for 63 food and beverage categories. So it basically covers everything you can think of. And the definition of those categories begins with the spins data. So it is an industry standard definition. It's not something we're coming up with mm -hmm. and customizing per se. So if you're already a spins client or you're already familiar with spins data, this is not going to be new nomenclature and, and just oddball construction. It's, it's very uh, understandable in that regard. Uh, I see a small brand as saying, hey, you know, if you compete in the salty snacks arena or the frozen desserts arena, you're going to go right to that data. And what's yep. cool is you can see the sales for the last three years. And in some cases, we forecasted going back, uh, reversing the data five years and then going forward five years. So yep. you can see sales through 2023. If you're trying to raise money, you might need that as a benchmark figure in your, um, in your business presentations. Yep. And also just to validate where you are, where you are among your peers. Because I think a lot of small brands, they know a ton, of, obviously, about what they're doing, but they're in the dark about what everyone else is doing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like it's hard to get other brands to share their numbers, right? It's, right, right. It feels so personal. And just because you're in Salty Snacks doesn't mean you can turn to another Salty Snack producer and ask them how their monthly sales are going, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it doesn't really happen. Yeah. And the other thing I would add is that because we have the consumer data and, and we do ask about specific categories, you can see demographically, you, you may as a small producer say, hey, we know we're a ready to drink beverage that's targeting women and yep. probably it's millennial women, let's say. Yep. So you can go into the data and you can see the behavior of females and millennials and see what, what else they're buying and see what else, the, what other attitudes they have. And I think it can really shape it can either formulate questions that you may not have asked as a producer when you read this report. It, it just sparks conversation and thought, but it also answers questions, very specific questions. Admittedly, they're you know, maybe at the 20,000 foot view. So if you need more data to answer some of these questions, you may have to buy it or look elsewhere. 
but it's a starting point. It's more than a starting point, really. Yeah. Yeah. Especially for a brand who is not to the point where they can purchase data from multiple outlets and they really are just starting out or dipping their toes into data analysis, right? Like, right. It's such a great place to start. Yes. Yeah. I love, and I love that, that you just alluded to this, but the idea of using this data to impact your marketing strategy by seeing, you know, oh, these millennial women who are in t- interested in my post-workout drink also share these commonalities. And therefore, I will put that into play in my part, I don't know, in my strategic partnership. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because because we've asked questions of, of all of these consumers about their food consumption, how much they're spending on groceries versus eating out yep. and, uh, and all kinds of other behaviors, the diets that they're on. Yep. You can really paint a, a broader picture of who you think your core consumer is. And you can learn a lot more than you, you might realize by using uh, like this. I, I love this. We talk so much about the core consumer and retail ready. And I feel like, I feel like I need to do a bonus in there, um, of analysis of this report and do some, do something for my students. I feel like it's so in line with what we talk about in the course. Sure. Okay. So we've got this report. It comes out annually. Like I said, you've been doing it for the past 10 years. I understand why a brand would want to use this. Where do they find it? So they should go to the Specialty Food Association website, which is just specialtyfood.com. Yep. And within their learning center, they have various courses that some some of which are for free and some of them uh, cost money. And they yep. can also look at Specialty Food Magazine because there is a uh, PDF version of this report that summarizes some of the best findings with graphics and, yeah. and insights. It's about 10 pages long. And all of that can be found on their site. And what I like is that you can also sort of ad hoc by uh, category forecasts and not the entire report. But the entire report, if you're a specialty food member, is only $600. Uh, And if you're a non-member, it's $1,500. To give you some perspective on that, that may sound like a ton of money. I I really don't think it is is a a ton of money by any means. A, A typical Mintel report might run... $3,000 $3,000 for one category and yeah. a, a Mintel, I'm sorry, a Spins or a Nielsen uh, report could easily run two or three K, you know, no problem with limited data. So this is a very affordable way of looking at it. Well, especially if you're all already a specialty food association member, I feel like a lot of my listeners are, and you know, not that this needs to turn into a plug for the specialty food association, but the specialty food association is the association that puts on the fancy food shows, fancy food, San Francisco and fancy food, New York. And they are this incredible resource for brands in the natural product space, which you mentioned, David includes a a digital learning library, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you can learn all kinds of things in terms of what other retailers are doing with micro loan programs or any kind of basics information about getting your product into d- distributors. Yep. And it's just a, an invaluable resource to be a member. So. Totally. So we'll link that in the show notes. So people don't, you know, if they're driving or cooking right now, they don't have to scramble and write down that, that address, but I'll make sure that's linked in the show notes. But I want to get into the can we get into the juicy stuff now about what's included <laughs> in this report? Absolutely. I'm sure our Absolutely. listeners are like, okay, Allie, like, okay, David, get to it. Um, I want to know, like, what are the key takeaways that you found in this past year of writing the report? Like, what 
What was there in are, there? Yeah, there are there are literally so many insights. It's making my head explode, <laughs> and and I'm the one who was writing it. I, I should certainly be the the, the most uh, you know familiar with and comfortable with it, but it still blows my mind every time I look at it. Um, you know, I think there are so many points, and it really depends on the listener what might pique their interest. And mm-hmm. I don't want to bog True. bog them down with too many numbers, but you know, we're talking about the specialty food industry is now a hundred and fifty billion dollar industry in the U.S. Um, I think one of the relevant takeaways right off the bat is brick and mortar stores are still 76% of those sales. And so, you know, there's so much talk these days about e-com and, and uh, the importance of having a direct-to-consumer program and Amazon sales and things like that. And it's all relevant, absolutely. But in our own data, you're talking about e-com only representing 2.5% of all sales at this point. So, it's really important. I like to look at this um, data. And, and I know you said this on one of your previous podcasts that you're absolutely right. When you start looking at data, you can kind of craft a story around your own directional impulses. And yeah. I try so hard not to do that. Instead, I try to take the tack when I write this report that it's important that people get a little bit of a reality check. And brick and mortar is not dead by any means, despite what some of the media might spin. Uh, oh, David, I love you for saying this. <laughs> I, I am, I'll let you get back to it in a second, but I will tell you every single week, I have people sending me DMs on Instagram, getting into my inbox and saying, can you help me with e-commerce? I want to do e-commerce launch. I'm going to do, you know, digitally native brand. <laughs> We're screw, screwing the brick and mortar. And I'm like, are you sure? Are yeah. you sure you want to go that route? Like, how good of an online marketer are you? How much money do you have? Like, right. let's, let's talk this out. So um, you are speaking my language. I'm thrilled to hear that your data says, what did you say? 76%? 70, 76% is brick and mortar. Yep. Wow. That's awesome. Right. Yeah. Cool. And, and, and then also food service. Food, so everyone's hmm. asking about food service. A lot of the brands that I talk to uh, for the report and just otherwise, you know, they have a food service strategy or at least they have a desire to get into food service. Well, food service is 22% of the market at this point. And it, and it is growing rapidly. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a tough nut to crack though. And I'll be honest, I spoke to a food service analyst for this last report. And uh, some of those insights are shared in the report. And food service is a tough nut. It really is a complicated network. It's a fragmented network. And I do think that, again, this is what I'm saying about this report. If you're interested in food service as a brand, read the report, even just do a keyword search. It's a massive document. Just find any discussion on food service very quickly in the report and you'll learn quickly, hey, you know, if we're going to have a strategy here, it's important, but maybe we hold off for now because look at the, look at how hard it is. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love using that to using the data to tell you maybe not not even what to do, but more importantly, what not to do. Correct. Yeah, yeah. correct. You know, one of the one of the other major uh, baseline points that we always take a look at every year is what percentage of all consumers buy specialty foods, and mm-hmm. so we ask a question at the very beginning of the report about their familiarity with the term. And then once yep. we've asked that, we say, hey, have you ever bought these products? And we give them examples. And so that helps to you know, stimulate you know, some understanding about what we're talking about and try to create some consistency there on the answers. And so we ask, have you bought these specialty products in the last six months? 74% of adults say they've bought specialty foods. And remember, this is natural and organic inclusive of premium. And wow. so obviously, this is a mainstreamed thing. This is not 30% of the universe of people buying these products or 50, even 50%. We're talking 75% and it's going up 
It's, it's, at, it's at its highest rate since 2013. Wow. And it's very wow. good for the industry to know that. I love that you say that because I, I often think about being in this bubble in San Francisco and thinking about, you know, seeing natural and organic and specialty booming here in the Bay Area. And I always try to do a reality check and be like, is it just my location? Is it just because I'm living in this in this bubble? And I sure. love that your data is saying, well, no, not really. Yeah. And um, I mean, don't get, don't get me wrong. I agree with you. It is, it is more of a coastal phenomenon. East coast and West coast, uh, coast generally have a higher percentage of people saying they bought these products, but we talk to brands and brands obviously are focused on retailers that are mis- Midwest retailers yep. or, uh, you know, Pacific, uh, Pacific, uh, retailers, I'm sorry, uh, like Montana or, yep. or even Wyoming, you know? Yep. So, so I think it's really important to, to know that you've got an, an audience there as well. Um, one of the key takeaways too from this report is we ask about the gen- the generations, and we always talk about millennials. Millennials are a broken record in the in the media yeah. in general. And so again, I, I as a Gen Xer myself, I was like, what else is going on besides millennial millennial findings? Because that yep. is the the story. They are definitely the core specialty consumer. But Gen Xers are as well. And what we did this year is we looked more closely at the age ranges and narrowed it a bit. And we found that it's actually mature millennials over the age of 35. And it's younger Gen Xers under the age of 54. So it's that 35 to 54-year-old sweet spot. That is the core consumer and, uh, you know, I think it's, it's important to note. So you got Gen Z coming up, you've got young millennials. And if your audience is, is those, those much younger uh, demographics, that's great. But the core consumer for these products is a little bit more mature. Hmm. Do you think it's because they have the income to spend on natural? Yeah, I do think that's part of it. We know from behavior too that the Gen Zs and the younger millennials, they're still not very savvy in the kitchen. They eat out Mm -hmm. a lot. They're still learning a lot. They don't even necessarily know what they're buying or how they would define it. And it's the more mature ones, uh, millennials and Gen Xers that have kids now and maybe want to eat healthier, want to eat at home more and cook and prepare meals, or at least have some shortcuts uh, that they do in the kitchen. Gotcha. That makes total sense. Yeah. yeah. I think one of the other findings too, is it used to be much more affluent consumers that bought mm-hmm. specialty foods. Usually okay. the, th- the threshold was households with at least 75,000 or more of income. I think the median household income in the US is about 50K. So mm-hmm. if it's skewing to 75 plus, it's obviously an affluent consumer. But we're finding as, as specialty foods are mainstreaming that a more, uh, a less affluent ha- household audience is also buying these products. And that's, that's a great sign for the industry uh, that it's more accessible. I think certainly with private labels, we're seeing more affordable premium products. We're also with competition, you know, there's such price competition, you can buy a a gourmet product in so many different outlets now that it, it is a price war out there, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know. I hate, I'm sure my listeners don't want to hear that, but, um, it's totally true, right? <laughs> you can buy gourmet products at lower price points today. So. Well, you know, and, and that's a whole other subject. I think the whole price value proposition, there's a lot of insights in the report about that. And I will say, there's no question that younger uh, millennials and Gen Zs, their attitude is, hey, I'm okay paying more for premium and natural mm-hmm. products. I get, mm-hmm. I get that, it's, that they cost more and I'm okay paying for it. It's generally the more mature audiences, not surprisingly, that are like, hey, you know what? This is kind of irritating to me that everything costs so much. So, you know, I think you, you got you to gotta understand the, the, the different generations have different priorities, of course. 
Totally. It makes sense. It makes sense. Those are great takeaways. Was there anything in writing this year's report that really surprised you? There were so many things. (laughs) I think (laughs) that's why I feel a little overwhelmed. You know, I want to cram so much in. I think one of the things that I would take away um, and mention this, this year is that we again focused on millennials, like I said. We also focus on women a lot in these reports because women generally are more, uh, they have more of an affinity towards these products. But we're seeing in recent years that men uh, are also increasingly interested in these types of products, particularly convenience based products. Mm-hmm. They tend to be very curious. They come into the store, they don't know a lot, but they want to know more. Um, it, it's increasingly true that men are sharing in the responsibility of grocery shopping for their Mm -hmm. household, at least part-time or even full-time. And so I think it's really, you know, a a key takeaway that brands that have a strategy, a marketing strategy, consider their male audience uh, very closely because they're curious, they're engaged. They are also, they tend to buy, uh, be more interested in buying these products online. So again, if there's an e-com strategy, don't forget men. There's a lot that can go along, uh, a lot that I could say just about men in general. Yeah. Um, I also think, you know, um, some of the other surprises that I've seen that we ask about food spending. You'd think that the specialty food consumer would spend a ton more on food in a typical month than a non-specialty food consumer, a traditional consumer, just because they're so obsessed with food and so interested in premium foods. And in general, we don't find that dollar for dollar, it's all that different. I think we found that specialty food consumers spend about 10% more on food, but it's, it's where they're spending it that's different. Uh, the non-specialty food consumer tends to eat out more, uh, particularly at fast casual and fast mm-hmm. food restaurants, mm-hmm. whereas the specialty food consumer is buying more groceries that they take home and cook. But uh, it still surprises me that the numbers aren't, aren't more, there isn't a larger gap there. Yeah, I, that, that surprises me too. And you know, when I stop and think about it, I can... I can see that rationale, right? Like there's all those reports that say shopping out, dining out, like is more expensive, um, even if it is fast casual. But I always think about that big (laughs) price tag that comes with my Whole Foods grocery basket. Right, right. And I I think, you know, there's been logical transitions that have happened that still kind of surprise me. Like I'm uh, conventional retailers like uh, the Kroger's and the Walmart's and the Target's. That's where the lion's share of sales are now occurring in specialty. And that's probably not a surprise to to most of your your listeners. But what surprises me is that that's still the strongest growth channel. Like uh, specialty retailers and natural retailers like Whole Foods and Sprouts are not growing as ro- as robustly with these products as mainstream retailers. And I get, it, to me, it's obvious that there's still so much more opportunity in mainstream to get new products on the shelves because we know Walmart and Target are coming out and saying, hey, we we want to embrace natural and premium products more and, and, and get, get those people into our stores to buy groceries. Yep. So there's yep. just so much opportunity there. But every time I look at the data every year, I'm like, wow, that growth is still so strong. I'm waiting for it to sort of trail off and it's not, it's not happening. That's a great segue into my next question. I want to know what has changed in the industry since you've been writing this report. What's changed in, in the report year, year over year? Um, how do you yeah, feel about I mean, it now? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there's so much uh, market maturity, obviously, is one of the sort of telling points. You know, when I started writing these reports a decade ago, 
10% or 15% year over year growth in this category or this market was common. And, mm -hmm. uh, and we've definitely seen that slow down. Yeah. But, the, but I think it's important to note the, the food industry in general in retail is very flat. And it's still the case that specialty is outpacing growth of all food by, you know, six or seven times. And, and, and that's, you know, fantastic. But it's still only about 16% of all food sales that are going to specialty at this point. Yep. Um, so there's a lot of room still for improvement there. Um, I think one of the things that I would also touch on that I've observed and I've heard from talking to the uh, supply chain is that a lot of the young brands and the CEOs and founders that are coming up these days, they're not necessarily from the food world. They come mm -hmm. from tech or yeah. they come from some yeah. other field where they've, they've already made their money yep. and they see an opportunity in the food industry as a disruptor. And, you know, I don't mean to be cynical, but there is definitely a, a financial um, drive there where they're saying, hey, we want to create a cool brand. We want to yeah. launch it and we want to sell it in the next three or four years and yeah. then move on to the next project. Whereas in the past, as you know, a lot of these mom and pop food operations, this is all they do and this is all they will do in their lives. They have no intention of selling. They don't, they're not necessarily business savvy either. So they need a lot of help. Yep. And uh, I think today's CEOs uh, in, in the food space, they're a lot savvier about, about business. But, uh, you know, that sort of detachedness has me a bit concerned as well. I am stereotyping, obviously. So. Oh, I, I was going to say stereotype away, but um, <laughs> I, I will tell you, I see that too, right? I, especially being in the Bay Area, again, like I get inquiries every single week from people who are looking to leave their tech jobs and get into the food industry because they see an opportunity. And, and oftentimes, you know, I, I just dig deeper, right? I'm like, okay, let's talk about how this is going to work. Let's talk about your supply chain. Let's talk about the logistics here. Let's, you know, here are the things that you need to consider. And either it excites them or they're like, oh yeah, food industry is hard. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I hate to say it too, because I, I mean, when you walk these shows, you know that there are entrepreneurs that are coming in with money. They're saying, hey, what what is the next hot category that yep. I can get into? And I think you'd say this to your to your students, and I would say it to the industry as well. From what I hear and what I see, these trends come and go and max out so quickly these days. You, you, you don't have the, the opportunity to come in late in the game and create a, you know, a uh, a hot sauce that's going to do well, or even a you know a gluten free cracker at this point. You know that that mm -hmm. category is saturated to the to the nth degree. And from what I've heard more recently, you've got trends like keto and uh, paleo that there's still opportunity, but the shelf life of these trends can be so much shorter before they saturate and sort of uh, flatten out sales wise. So it's a tricky business. It's, there's no easy answer. Yeah, totally. And I think one of the the things that I I always remind my students and the things that I think about is, is it really depends on what your definition of success is as well, right? Like I can have a hot sauce producer come to me and they say, I want to sell regionally. I want to support my family. I want to employ six people. And that is my, that is my dream. That's what I want to do. And I say, yes, we can get you there. That sounds like a totally realistic goal and we can make it happen. And if they come to me and they say, I want to sell in Costco nationally and sell my company for 
$300 million in three years for my single skew hot sauce. <laughs> We're talking about a different... <laughs> I like that you're laughing. We're talking about a different, uh, a different set of problems to solve, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I do think I love the challenges that are that are coming up and a lot of the optimism that is going on in the industry, because I don't, you know, even even with direct to consumer sales, you know, I mentioned earlier, it's only two and a half percent of the of the total market at this point. It's small beans. Another data point I would throw out right now, too, is in our data, 60 percent of consumers say they only buy groceries in stores. They don't buy anything food and beverage wise online. And so those kinds of reality checks are important. And yet I love to hear stories about brands that only do direct to consumer that have, that have really, you know, maybe had the door shut in their face with brick and mortar. And they said, you know, screw it. I'm going to, I'm going to find a way. And they found a niche and they can, they can communicate directly with their consumers and even, and even garner, you know, data on those consumers that they can then put back into the business. There's a lot of cool stuff happening. Yeah. Oh, I love this. I feel like you and I could talk about this, this sort of stuff all day long, but I've got, I've got two more questions for you. I want to, wait, I've got two questions and then a a little bonus question that's off script. Um, Let me ask the bonus question first. And if you don't have an answer for it, that's okay. But David, I feel like you are, you're, you're so in the know on trends in the industry if you were going to develop a brand, a product line, what would it be? Wow, that that is a really <laughs> tough question. Um, you know, I think I think you have to answer a couple of questions to jump through those hoops. I do yeah. think you you have to be passionate about something very specific at this point. Yeah. And so for me, uh, I come from Whole Foods where I was a, a whole body team leader. So mm-hmm. supplements, yep. herbal medicines, homeopathy, body care. These are products that are like I have such a, a love and affinity for because it's kind of how I cut my teeth in the industry. And and it's not that I would do that at this point, but I probably would come up with some sort of food or beverage product that does have a functional, um, a functional purpose. Yep. Uh, I'm very passionate about price sensitivity. And I mentioned that a little bit earlier, but I, it really bothers me when these products are so expensive that only, you know, very affluent people can afford them. Yep. And so I would want to develop something that is functional, but that can be, uh, you know, can be available and accessible yeah. to a wide audience selling at, you know, convenience stores even. Yep. And, you know, from there, I think, you know, I'm, I'm sensitive to a lot of the health issues that a lot of, that matter to a lot of people, non-GMO and gluten-free and other things like that. So I, I would, I would get those certifications, but you'll notice I'm being somewhat vague because I do think I, I there are opportunities in a lot of different categories to create niche products, but you have to have that passion behind something specific. And the consumer really gravitates to that. They really pick up on that. If they can hear that story and they really believe, hey, this is, this, this is a brand that's for the greater good and I want to support it, that's what matters. Yeah. Oh, I love this. And I promise I won't put you on the spot again. <laughs> You're like, okay. Allie, do not okay. ask me off script questions. <laughs> I'm texting you feverishly right now. Exactly. You're like, cut it, cut it. Um, that makes total sense, right? And I love that you you hit on that, both the functionality, functional products being such a booming category and and being really price sensitive to 
continue to make natural and organic and specialty accessible to a broader audience. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I know we're cut for time, but I, uh, I want to also say, you know, in some of the research I've done with uh, speaking to brands, it is so cool to hear stories, and you may have heard this yourself, where brands reach out to a given retailer or a retail chain, and they try to come up with something that's exclusive, that is mutually beneficial. They innovate mm-hmm. to meet the needs of a retailer or a community or a region. And... I love the idea that there is that kind of collaboration happening, whether it's with a brand and a retailer or a brand and a distributor, and it's mutually beneficial financially and and otherwise. I I love that. Yeah. And I know, and you have the insight to talk about this because you've done a lot of interviews with people all across the supply chain, the retailers, the brokers, the brands, the distributors, on and on and on. Um, how How did you start talking with all of those different people along the way? Why, yeah. And why did you put that focus in your reporting? Yeah. yeah. So years ago, the the specialty food uh, market report, we would just do an online survey of the supply chain. But we mm-hmm. realized that the data we were getting was uh, not always the greatest because we were asking really specific questions about their numbers. And it would just be a pain in the neck, honestly, for these busy supply chain people to fill out you know, 20 questions about their financial results and trends that they're seeing that are working or not working. And so we decided a few years ago instead that we would identify CEOs and founders and VPs and heads of sales in strategic companies, maybe 20 companies, and talk to them specifically and ask them how things are going in a much more free-flowing environment similar to the one we're doing today. And it it has been so revealing. And in the report, it's like a 30-page section where we've summarized uh, all of the insights about what's working, you know, questions, difficult questions. What, what's, uh, what are the pain points of your business these days? How has it been working with distributors? Uh, what's your e-com strategy or your food service strategy? And we do it anonymously so that we can quote these people without mm-hmm. any risk to their, you know, uh, proprietary yep. information. So it's, it's, it's just phenomenal. Oh, I would love to be, you know, a fly on the wall for some <laughs> of those conversations. That sounds so fascinating to me. It really is. I mean, I've, I've learned a lot myself just in terms of the barriers to doing business. I talked to one brand just as a side story, it just came to mind that ha- that does have a, a, a condiment type of product that, as you know, that, that sector is just yeah. glutted. There's just too many. Right. Yep. And she found that the regular retailers and the, the traditional food retailers were not all that interested, but she was finding success with non-traditional retailers like uh, Lowe's or Home Depot or mm. things like that. And I just think that to me, to hear a story like that, it's, it's relevant to the entire membership or to the food and beverage industry as a whole that, hey, you know, don't get bogged down and like there's one way to do this. There are, there are infinite ways and you'd be surprised some of these non-traditional retailers may be some of your most successful business uh, opportunities. Oh, totally. I have a retail-ready student right now who makes peach pies. He's in the South. And he is pitching to car dealerships as like, <laughs> literally like a, congratulations on buying a car. Here's a pie. Like, <laughs> oh my God, how brilliant is that? Um, bit, like not at all a traditional retailer, but like pretty good movement. Yeah, that's I love that. I love that story. And I also think for me, it's important because we look at this industry that is maturing. And when when I've talked to some of these companies in there, and they continue to say these emerging brands say, look, there's still so many undertapped niches that they feel that they can exploit. To me, that just gets me really revved up that the industry is still thriving and innovating. And 
it's a dimension that I wouldn't get simply by walking a trade show or just looking at numbers, you know, to talk to these yeah. people and see how optimistic they are or, you know, some of the realities as well. The challenges um, just really invigorates me when I write this report. Oh, I love it. I can, I can hear the excitement about the report in your voice. So I've got one last question for you. How can people find you? So I know you're going to be at Fancy Food this coming January, January 2020 in San Francisco, right? Right, right. Okay, so what are you doing at Fancy Food and where can people find you beyond that? Yeah, so at the Fancy Food Show every year, I co-present with the director of consulting at Mintel, this uh, uh, brilliant guy named David Lockwood. We we try to pre- present uh, sort of the state of the industry, but we do it in a format lately that's more of a question and answer. And so we're going to be on the main stage on one of these days to be determined, uh, January 19th to 21st. It's probably going to be Sunday okay. or Monday. And again, it's going to be relevant topics. We're actually sending out a, a mobile survey of, to membership to make sure that the, the, the topics that we're interested in talking about are relevant to them. So they're going to help choose so that we can cool. really make it an effective presentation. Um, and then on LinkedIn, you can find me, uh, you know, I'm David Brown with an E on the end of Brown. And I don't think there are too many of me out there. So you can <laughs> find me there. Awesome. And I will obviously include your LinkedIn profile in our show notes today. And of course, David, I'm going to come and see you in person at Fancy Food January next month. That's going to be so much fun. And I cannot tell you how thrilled I am and how grateful I am to have you on the show today. I feel like you provided so much insight in our short little episode. Clearly, you and I could talk about this all day long. We could. We could. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for giving your time to Food Biz Wiz. It's a pleasure and I'll happy, happily do it again. Thank you. I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for joining us, David. I am so honored to have gotten to know you this year and I'm grateful for the time that you spent with us today. Like I said, I can't wait to see you in person at the Fancy Food Show. And I'm so appreciative of your insight today. And all right, my whizzes, I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. David had so much information to share, and I know that you guys got a lot out of it. I'm going to be at Fancy Food in January. And if you are, let me know. I would love to connect with some of my listeners in person that week. And maybe we can all meet up at David's talk. That would be so fun. And in any case, Thank you for tuning in again this week. And don't forget to join us in my Food Biz Wiz Facebook group if you're not in there already. We have a whole bunch of emerging brands in there having really lively conversations week in and week out. I would love to have you join us and continue the conversation with me. So I'll link that group in our show notes as well. Okay. That's it. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back next week for my last guest episode of season two. I'm speaking with food business coach, Chelsea Ford, all about entrepreneurial mindset. It is just the episode you need before we set our goals for 2020. Until then, have a great week and stay busy. If you've been enjoying these episodes, imagine what it would be like to ask clarifying questions directly to me and to have my assistants working through your strategy on these topics. Well, you can. My retail ready students have access to me, 
live in our private online group and on our monthly coaching calls. And I would love to see you in there as well. Retail Ready Enrollment opens again soon. So jump on the wait list in today's show notes or at foodbizwiz.com and save your spot. Thank you for listening to Food Biz Wiz, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe so you never miss a beat. Hungry for more? Check out www.foodbizwiz.com. That's food, B-I-Z-W-I-Z.com for detailed show notes from all episodes. Thanks again for tuning in and stay busy.